0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hey everyone, it's Kevin here. We have some exciting news at Behind the Knife. We received such great feedback from our general surgery oral board review that we decided to recreate it for Vascular. We assembled a team of five vascular surgeons and made 72 scenarios based directly off the V-score curriculum. Each of the 72 scenarios has a Part A and Part B. Part A is the examiner and examinee going through the scenario as they would on exam day. This gives you a chance to pause throughout and practice your answers. Part B is the same back and forth as Part A, but with helpful commentary spread throughout. Some of the commentary is to reinforce learning points, as we all know that the key to adult learning is repetition. Some of the commentary is to highlight surgical decision making. And lastly, some of the points are to discuss test taking strategies. Every scenario has a surgical description and common complications to help make sure you are ready for test day. You can practice your oral boards on the go while driving or cleaning or working out with the Teachable app and later this summer on our own native Behind the Knife app. Go to BehindTheKnife.org and click the premium tab to learn more. Stay subscribed to Behind the Knife as next week we'll release two example episodes to help you dominate your boards.
2: Well, welcome to Behind the Knife. My name is Craig Brown. I'm joined by Frank Davis today. Uh, we're your vascular team for uh, BTK and we're coming to you with an episode that actually was borne out due to uh, feedback from some of our listeners. Uh, we actually get this uh, request a lot from, from junior trainees and I certainly had this concern when I uh, was going through uh, my junior residency myself, Uh, and really what we're going to talk about today is kind of an introduction to endovascular surgery, almost like a primer to endovascular surgery, so that way people can feel like they get past all the the words and the devices and the measurements and that sort of thing, so they can actually understand what's trying to be accomplished during an endovascular case. Um, You know, when I was a junior resident, I struggled and struggled with the decision around whether to pursue vascular surgery uh, as a career. And one of the big things that was a hang-up for me was that I knew I liked open surgery, but I didn't really have exposure to endovascular surgery. And the endovascular surgery that I did have exposure to was kind of boring to me because I didn't really understand what was going on and just seemed like it was so far out of my reach. And really what it came down to was an understanding that it's not actually the technical aspect of the endovascular surgery spin in the wire and that sort of thing that's actually satisfying so much as it's the planning and the decision making and the ability to be creative around uh, uh, solving a particular problem. And in order to really appreciate that part of endovascular surgery, you have to get over this hump of talking about the, the devices and the, the things that are so uh, kind of foreign to a, for example, junior general surgical trainee. So um, with that, uh, we're going to dive right into, the, again, this primer to endovascular surgery. We're going to talk about the basics of wires and catheters and sheaths and uh, hopefully get people up to speed so they feel like they can participate meaningfully in these cases.
1: Yes, yeah, so true, Craig. So I mean, I think across the board, uh, surgical education, especially in the endovascular arena, I think is lacking. I think this is why BTK has been a phenomenal educational resource for surgical trainees is to really introduce individuals to the nuances of surgical subspecialties. And here in vascular surgery, endovascular surgery is such an important part of our ability to care for patients from a variety of different diseases. So whether you're a general surgery trainee, a medical student, or anyone else interested in understanding better the nuances of endovascular surgery. Um, And so you learn about some of the technical jargon we talk about, but also learn about how we make decisions in terms of how to approach an endovascular case. I think this primer can really be important for you in that setting.
2: So, uh, you know, for the people listening, uh, usually we just have audio. Uh, We're we're trying to dive more into the kind of visual part of these podcasts. And so we're going to do our best to ride the line, uh, to make this, these case, uh, sorry, this discussion useful if you're just listening, but it really does benefit from an, a visual component. And so some of the discussion around these catheter types and things like that really aids from seeing what the catheter shape is, or, or having seen even the sheaths or wires ahead of time. And so, uh, we don't rely too heavily on the visual aid here, but if you can listen with the, the, um, we're going to walk through a PowerPoint with some video, some pictures of different catheters and wires and things like that that can be helpful. So if you can, take time and uh, add the visual aid too, okay? Um, the general flow of the episode is really going to be a first discussion about wires. We'll talk about then catheters and then talk about sheaths and, sheaths, and then we'll kind of eventually get to some discussion around balloons, stents, and then tips and tricks for endovascular surgery at the end. All right. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Frank. Yeah. Um, I'd say for those of
1: you who've never seen an endovascular feeders, the kind of approaches can be extremely variable, which is I think the strength of vascular surgery in general. Um, we and we don't have time to discuss all the variations in the different catheters and sheaths that we go to, so we're going to stick to kind of the simplest and standard approaches that we, we use in probably about seventy to eighty percent of our cases. But understand that things can get very complicated quickly when you start to talk about complex aortic endovascular cases using an array of different catheters and wires. Um, so to begin with, the general idea behind endovascular surgery is that the way we get access to any major artery and vein is often through the groin, through the common femoral artery, or a venous puncture in the common femoral vein. And it's usually percutaneous um, with, a, with a finder needle. And then we use cylinder technique, which is where you use an access wire to cannulate the vessel and exchange the needle for that uh, sheath itself over top of the wire. So you always use the wire as your rail and platform to allow you to have continual interarterial access and never lose that access. One of the tried and true advantages and adages, excuse me, in vascular surgery is never lose the wire. Always hold control of the wire. So anybody who's ever put in a central line or arterial line or used an ultrasound guided IV has used this exact same technique. So we won't harp too much on like the actual technical nuances of that, but I think that's kind of the tried and true basics of endovascular surgery. Then once we have wire access through there, there's a lot of paths depending on what you want to do and where you want to get there. The entire process is some variations of wires inside catheters, which are then inside sheaths themselves. And we have those pictured all here of the different nuances and sizes on here on the screen. And it's how we use these wires, catheters, and sheaths is actually our endovascular platform. So the summations of all of those is how we build our platform and how we develop a case. So there's combinations of sheath, catheter, and wires that allow you to have passages of contrast through the, through the device to diagnose and treat a patient's vascular pathology.
2: So it, it's a good, I, I think one of the more confusing parts about this and, and something that allowed me to participate more fully in these cases was understanding the measurements and, and how we ta- like we throw around these words, French and 0 inch and all these things. And it's hard to keep it all straight. So we're going to talk real quickly about measurements and what exactly the numbers mean when we're talking, because I think it's a, it's a, platform for how we discuss the rest of these things and things got to fit inside other things and it's, it's tough to keep it all straight so generally speaking wires are measured by the diameter of the wire and it's usually in inches so 0.035 is 35 thousandths of an inch uh, that's a common wire size that we use it's quite a large wire in the grand scheme of things but they also get much smaller we also will use uh, often a, an 018 or 0.018 inch guide wire which is kind of the common initial, uh, for example, you're putting in an uh, arterial line and you're going to put a cope wire in, that's that standard arterial access wire. That would be an 018 wire, but they also get smaller, down to 014 and even 010. And sometimes we use those different smaller wires with different characteristics to do different things, for example, recanalize a chronic total occlusion or cross a lesion, that sort of thing. Um, separately, though, catheters, which, again, are is a tube is we co-actually place a wire through a catheter when we're working endovascularly is measured in French. And you guys have, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast is familiar with what French is. And we talk about all sorts of tubes and things in medicine being measured in French. And really what one unit of French is, is one third of a millimeter. Now it's important to understand that there's two holes that you could be measuring in a catheter, right? You can measure the inner diameter, which is the the tube that the wire goes through, or you could be measuring the outer diameter of the catheter. And the convention is important to understand that we measure for catheters, the outer diameter of the catheter. So the actual number, for example, a four French catheter has, that's a, that's the outer diameter of the catheter. Okay. Contrarily, a sheath is also measured in French, but it's the inner diameter. And so it's important to keep those things straight when you're trying to put catheters through sheaths, and you think, oh, well, this is going to fit this, but it's not quite that simple. Uh, an example of this is that an, an o, um, a 0.035-inch guide wire won't fit through a 3-French sheath, even though 3-French uh, is over 0.035 inches you'd think oh that fit in there great it turns out it won't fit and the reason why is because it's actually the outer diameter of the catheter not the inner diameter of the catheter so you need a four french catheter to fit that that wire yeah
1: good very good point uh, craig i think um that uh, we throw, our, throw out a lot of these different wired sizes as well as french sizes and i think it's just important to establish the basics for that before we move on so now we're going to take them in each individual aspect. So the first we'll start with our wires. And in endovascular surgery, your wire is really your tried and true ability to get to a given from point A to point B. How are you going to gain access to the common femoral artery, then maybe go up and cannulate your renal artery to place a stent? But different wires have different properties that thereby can make their abilities to gain access to different torturous vessels or different calcified vessels easier or harder. So wires come in a very <coughs> variety of shapes and sizes, but generally they have four properties that are worth discussing, I think. First and foremost is the diameter. So smaller wires fit uh, places that bigger wires won't. For example, you know, if you're trying to cannulate a third order branch off the hepatic artery, you probably want to use a 0.014 or a 0.010 wire because your 0.035 is just going to be too big and too bulky to get out in that way. Um, secondly, wires come in a variety of sizes ranging from what we talked about, 0.010 to 0.035. And we already mentioned that the common access wire that probably everybody is familiar with from a central line or a radial arterial line is a 0.018 size wire. The second property of wires is their stiffness. And I think stiffer, the stiffer the wire, the more you can push an endovascular balloon or a device such as an endovascular aortic aneurysm repair device without it having to bend or kind of curling within the vessel itself. Also, the stiffer wire is more able to support a platform for exchanges, at, and as such, you can put in a larger sheath over top of that. However, uh, a floppier wire, one with has the better ability to steer and select vessels that are more torturous. So you have to kind of think about, well, when you look at your angiogram, how torturous your vessel and what characteristics of a wire would best allow you to navigate that vessel's anatomy or that vessel's architecture. In endovascular surgery we'll commonly start with an access wire we talked about and then we'll advance over a moderately stiff wire that's usually a 0.035 wire. We don't usually have to you don't want to shove a very stiff wire unprotected through inside an artery because that stiff wire will not take the turns of your arterial system well and could dissect the wire. So you always want to be cognizant of what the flexibility of your wire is and not trying to force a stiff wire into a tortuous vessel.
2: Um, and then, you know, along with stiffness, it's not, it, it gets complicated and we'll do our best not to dive too much into the weeds here, but, uh, oftentimes we'll talk about the end of a wire because there'll be a different stiffness at the end, which is often referred to as a flop. So the tip of the catheter of what otherwise may be a fairly stiff wire may be less stiff in on purpose. And so, uh, differing lengths of that differential stiffness or flop, uh, are different across different wires. So sometimes wires might be described as having a short flop or a long flop, depending on uh, how long that segment of kind of floppy non stiff wire is. Um, So I just want to bring that point up. The third point that's worth discussing is uh, something called hydrophilicity. That's basically going to take you guys back to your, your biology or chemistry days where we learned about lipids and membranes and all the stuff that um, you guys all probably tried to forget ever since. Um, But uh, everybody is very, you know, familiar with these terms, hydrophilic and hydrophobic, and really, what it comes down to is. The way that the wires interact with things that go over top of them or the vessel lumen itself, and so um, it turns out that hydrophilic wires have less friction, and that, that and that allows them to track along vessel lumens better. But they're also more prone to sliding between plaque and the arterial wall, and so they're more likely to cause a dissection flap than a hydrophobic wire. And so sometimes when we when we want uh, to you know track along a vessel, we might use a hydrophilic wire, but uh, we often will use hydrophobic wires um, for s- exchanges, or stiffer wires are often hydrophobic, so that we they don't have those, uh, they don't worsen those properties that Frank talked about before with respect to causing dissections when they can't track along the vessel. Yeah, I, and then the fourth and the kind of last property that we're going to discuss is kind of this what we
1: call steerability of the wire, as well as its tip shape. So um, as Craig talked about, there's the the end part of the wire is. is can be both floppy and stiff, as well as the end part of the wire can be different shapes in order to allow you to navigate the vessels better and be less traumatic to the vessel wall. So a common tip shape at the end of the wire is a J tip. And it, the, the tip of the wire looks exactly what it sounds like, it looks like a J. Such, and it's the wire that you typically see within your central line access kit, which is the one that you know probably people listening to this podcast are most familiar with. But we could also have different tip shapes that can be slightly angled And um, these slightly angled tip shapes are great for steering that wire along the contour of different vessels and navigating turns and navigating corners. Last but not least, wires can be straight, and even some wires can be shapeable. So before you access the vessel and place that wire in, you can almost mold that tip of the wire outside of the body to a tip shape that you think would best accommodate what you're seeing on the screen in terms of the patient's anatomy. And in reality, we use a variety of different shapes of the wires as well as different stiffness of the wires. And we have these all stocked in our endovascular suite. And I think it's really important that when you rotate through your vascular surgery rotations that you kind of pull aside either the staff or pull aside some of the IR techs that work in that area and just look at all the different tip shapes, and the wires themselves so you can gain a better idea of what you're kind of working with from your
2: endovascular suite aspect. Perfect. So uh, let's use this opportunity to... uh uh, go forward and talk about catheters a little bit. Uh, we we just had what was an absolute whirlwind of entry into endovascular surgery and wires, but hopefully that all makes sense for you guys. But let's quickly talk about catheters. We're not going to um, go through every single catheter available, um, mostly because there's a billion of them, but uh, there's a couple kind of um, basic categories and characteristics that are uh, across different types of catheters that allow us to use them for different things. Frank, do you want to talk um, quick about different catheters.
0: Hello, listeners. Patrick Georgeoff here. I wanted to tell you about a very cool study being run by our friends at Brooke Army Medical Center. They are working to better define proficiency-based metrics for competency in commonly performed robotic general surgery procedures. If you are a general surgery resident or a practicing surgeon who performs robotic assisted cholecystectomies or inguinal hernia repairs, check out the show notes for more information on how you could be compensated $500 per video submitted. That's right. $500 per video submitted. Check it out. Now back to the show.
1: Yeah. So catheters differ in their size, both in terms of diameter, as well as their length, as well as the number of either side holes or end holes that a catheter has on it. And in addition, the catheters have different stiffnesses of material as well as internal hydrophilicity or radio opacity. So uh, different as similar to the wires, catheters can be constructed with different properties that best allow you to, you know, complete the case that you're trying to do. Generally speaking, though, there are two basic categories. First, they are called flush catheters, which usually have a lot of side holes right at before you get to the tip of the catheter. And the reason these are called flush catheters and have the side holes is because these catheters allow for power injection of contrast into an arterial system that best um, pretty much illuminates the vessel wall, as well as allows you to really detail analyze the flow of blood through that given vessel. Next, there are selective catheters, which usually have a, a single end hole, and they don't have those side holes. And these selective catheters can come in a lot of different shapes, and based upon the shape of the selective catheter, it best allows you to you know, access a given vessel with a different angulation. And here on the screen, I think it's important that... Um, our uh, podcast PowerPoint is we have a number of different catheters, selective catheters, and you can see the plethora of different shapes that all can allow you to do perform different procedures based upon the shape itself.
2: So, um, you know, the, 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 this is just one set of catheters that's available. There's, there's way more than this, it turns out, but the, the point of showing this slide, I think, and, and for the people listening, you know, basically you can, any direction or shape you can think of to put at the end of a catheter has been made. And um, there are a few that we use for common scenarios. And so I think when you're, when you're doing these cases, especially early on, you want to pay attention to the, to the catheters that we use commonly. Uh, And because, because a lot of these have very selective kind of one-off uses that we want to have stocked in case we get ourselves in that situation. But the reality is, is that a lot of kind of up and over contralateral work, or uh, intra-aortic work, we use the same four or five catheters over, you know, over time. And so having some understanding of kind of the, the, the common catheters that you use or that your staff use is can be really helpful.
1: Yeah. So I think when you talk about the common catheters that people might want to hear, hear us talk about a lot in that vascular suite or see dictated in operative notes, those catheters include your OmniFlush catheter, your pigtail catheter, your selective glide catheter itself, Sometimes you might hear us talk about a sauce or a Simmons catheter, which is a more steep angled catheter. Um, but I think those are kind of, you know, probably your four tried and true catheters that you're going to hear the names mentioned frequently in the end of endovascular suite. And just, it's important to see that, um, uh, see there are pictures here on this catheter, um, picture booklet, just so you can get an understanding of the shapes and stuff like it shapes itself.
2: So, uh, Again, same kind of thing. There's a million different shapes, a million different sizes, wires, catheters. But let's move on to sheaths real quickly, which are thankfully much uh, less complicated. Um, so the, really the thing that is important about sheaths is, that, uh, is the size. So it turns out that um, there's there are properties of sheaths just like we've discussed with catheters. Um, but realistically, sheaths are dictated by the size. And as I mentioned before, the inner diameter or, or the the basically the the measurement of a sheath is the size of a platform that it will accommodate. And so if you can if you have a particular catheter size or device that needs a, a size to pass through it, then the size of the sheath in French is is how big of it can accommodate. And so um, we have she, we have sheaths that are as small as three or four French, and they actually go up to 24 French or even bigger depending on um, you know what you're doing. Um, secondly, different lengths of sheaths can be helpful. And so if you're doing something close to where your access point is, you might want a short sheath. And we talk about short sheaths and long sheaths. Um, likewise, if you're trying to get a platform up in the aortic arch from the groin, you might need a much longer sheath. And so having some understanding of the sheath lengths and which options are available, uh, will allow you to kind of, uh, deliver your, your device, uh, in the best way possible. Uh, we won't talk too much about reinforced versus not reinforced sheaths, um, but suffice it to say that there's uh, different characteristics that um, that separate different types of sheaths once you dig into the details. And then separately, uh, the same principles of hydrophilicity or hydrophobicity apply to the inner lining of sheaths as well. And so you might use one or the other based on the type of device you're going to uh, deliver. And then uh, there's a picture here on the screen, but, but different... Sheaths actually are shapeable for different scenarios, and so um, some sheaths are designed to guide a device into a particular location uh, that might be useful in a a similar way as uh, different shaped catheters would be for wires.
1: Yeah. So So, so far we've touched base about wires which go inside of catheters, and then catheters go inside of sheaths. And the combination of that wire catheter sheath makeup is actually your endovascular platform. So, this whole platform sometimes is just delivered, uh, is just set up to, in order to deliver contrast in order to take an angiogram, in order to truly establish what the blood flow looks like, where the narrowings are, where the occlusions, and then allow for a treatment plan. So, and when we do an angiogram and we see such things as a narrowing or an occlusion, Then we can intervene on that in order to help the patient's blood flow and improve either their healing or reduce their claudication or reduce their rest pain in any of those fashions. But in order to do that and actually treat the patient's condition, then we have to start talking about either balloons, stents, or atherectomies, which are all kind of our interventional arm of the endovascular surgical suite. So let's start by talking about simply talking about balloons first. So, Craig, why don't you talk about that if you don't mind?
2: Yeah. So, uh balloons are uh, have been around for a long time they form really the the foundation for endovascular surgery and so uh you know people back in the day started taking angiograms with contrast and then the next thing they did was put wires and balloons through things and blow stenoses up and so um balloons come in a, a kind of three different forms really two and then one that's kind of in the middle so there are th- the, the first type of balloon that's worth talking about is called a non-compliant balloon. Those are balloons that when you inflate them, they inflate to a specific shape and a specific size. And those, uh, for anybody who's been in an endovascular case, are commonly used. We inflate them to a rated pressure. You've probably heard your staff or or even the scrub tech say, that, oh, the nominal pressure and the burst pressure. And we'll talk more about those in a minute. But the um, th- those are typical for So non-compliant balloons are kind of the common workhorse of endovascular surgery in that they're meant to blow up stenoses, and they differ from compliant balloons, which actually don't inflate to a particular pressure. Usually they inflate to a specific volume with the idea that they should fill the shape that they're inflated inside. And so common examples of those would be Pruitt occlusion balloons or Fogarty balloons, which we often use in even open surgery. Uh, But the idea is to occlude the vessel as opposed to materially change the vessel shape or uh, inflate inside of a stenosis. For com- for non-compliant balloons, the nominal pressure is the pressure at which 95% of uh, balloons won't rupture, and the burst pressure is that. Uh, or sorry, the burst pressure is the pressure at which 99.9% of balloons will not rupture. And so uh, that is con- contrary to kind of the way that you might think of that that uh, number. Um so as a junior trainee i used to think oh we should never approach the burst pressure but uh realistically we use the burst pressure uh as sometimes the upper limit of of where we go because the characteristics of the balloon are designed such that they shouldn't actually burst at that pressure and then i think balloons can get
1: pretty complex and we won't go into a ton of detail but there exists a broad category of devices that can be um different types of balloons besides just these compliant non-compliant and the semi-compliant balloons and we talked about the burst rating for theirs aspects, um, and then balloons themselves can come in two different um, shapes in which you advance them over um, the wire. Because in order to get the balloon to a given location in their uh, in the body, to the to treat the area of stenosis, you could have to advance it over the wire. So at the bottom of the PowerPoint here, you can see that balloons can come either a rapidly exchange platform or an over-the-wire platform. And pretty much these are just two different types of balloons and the matter relates to where the wire comes out on the back of the balloon, whether it comes out close to the balloon tip or it comes out way in the back of the balloon. And these are subtle nuances that you might encounter as you kind of begin to advance in your endovascular skill set themselves. So next, we also talked about there's other types of balloons that are actually drug-eluting balloons and cutting balloons. And these are more specific types of balloons, and as such they're more expensive when you start to talk about uses uses of these. But um, the drug-eluting balloons are used specifically to treat recurrent stenosis or um, instant stenosis themselves, and they are actually coated in an antiproliferative agent, typically called paclitaxel, that acts on the endothelial surface. And what happens is when you advance this balloon into an area of stenosis and then inflate it, that balloon will place that specific drug at the area where the balloon is inflated and actually place it into the endothelial wall. The, the mindset behind this treatment is that for people who have recurrent instant restenosis is that by treating a drug delivery system, paclitaxel, in the area of the stenosis, you will hopefully prevent future neo hyperplasia or instant restenosis. And that's kind of the aspect of why we used to use a drug-coating balloon rather than just a typical balloon angioplasty, which does not have any drug delivery system. The other type of balloon pictured here on the screen is a cutting balloon. And similar to a drug-coating balloon, this is a specific type of balloon. But instead of having a drug coating the outer wall of the balloon, this balloon actually has razor blades coating the outer wall. And it requires a larger platform to actually place the balloon. But once it's advanced into the given stenosis and inflated, it actually has little... Um, Atheromatomes on the balloon itself that hope to help to cut the instant restenosis or the neointimal hyperplasia and allow for a better expansion of the vessel when it's inflated.
2: All right, so we're going to next uh, move on to stents, which uh, obviously are also very common and uh, in, in are hopefully something you guys have seen before if you've seen endovascular surgery. Um, it turns out that uh, there's really kind of two basic types of stents. So uh, stents in general are some structure of wire. There's a bunch of different types of metals that you use, but uh, kind of the common one is nitinol. And they're designed to hold a, an open configuration, uh, but to be collapsible inside of the sheath. But once they get expanded, they're designed to keep that shape and provide radial force onto whatever they're inside. So uh, the two categories that are worth talking about, one is uh, called balloon expandable, which is exactly what it sounds like. And then self-expanding, which is uh, is loaded inside of a sheath And has uh, it opens by just potential energy that's stored within the frame. And so, uh, balloon expandable stents are oftentimes more rigid. They have usually a larger profile because they have to accommodate the balloon, and they aren't usually particularly deformable. So they're kind of meant to keep a particular shape. Uh, And the the benefit of a balloon expandable stent is that they're they're they. They somewhat better allow for accurate deplo- deployment um, because they require the balloon to expand and you can do it uh, in a controlled fashion. But on the other hand, self-expanding stents are more flexible. They have this, like I mentioned before, a smaller profile. They're oftentimes more deformable so they can navigate uh, tortuosity a little better. But they expand, expand based on this uh, stored potential energy. And so that can allow them to slide or even sometimes jump inside vessels And that that they end up in places where you might not necessarily want them uh, or at least are unexpected.
1: Yeah. No, that's a good ex- explanation of really the two types of stents that you might see a, um placed during an endovascular procedure. So, in a different to the types of stents whether it's balloon expandable or self-expandable, I think it's also important to think about what that covering around the stent is itself. So, stents can come in either bare metal stent, which is exactly what it is, it almost it has looks like a chicken wire configuration and there's no coating on the outside, or they can be covered stents. Um covered stents don't allow for flow through the fabric, whereas bare metal stents still allow blood flow to flow through the struts. Um, so I think it's important to think about when you're going to pr- uh, place a stent, you have to think about those different categories: balloon expandable, self-expandable, bare metal versus covered stents. Um, and then last but not least, there's the different aspects of the stent structure, stent strut structure itself, excuse me. Um, and they could be either an open cell configuration, which is pictured there on the left, or a closed cell configuration. And based upon the stent strut structure, you can either be more flexible or more rigid, with the closed cell structure being a more rigid stent, and as such does not take vessel tortuosity, does not take vessel turns very well, and will often kink um, and thereby fracture the stent. So when you're going to place your stent, you need to really look at the anatomy of the blood flow, the tortuosity of the blood vessel, the level of calcification, and really pick the right stent for the right lesion in the right
2: place. So... That's that's it for, you know, again, whirlwind tour of wires, catheters, sheaths, uh, balloons, stents and that sort of thing. But uh, Frank, talk me through the basics of how you approach an endovascular case as if you were teaching, you know, a junior trainee and and sort of give them the lay of the land uh, so that, that hopefully they can have some way to approach a case when they see on the schedule that they're assigned to an endovascular case.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think that's always a good point, Craig, and I think as, as junior trainees and junior surgical residents, even medical students, when you approach an endovascular case, it sometimes can be daunting because you haven't had experience with it before, you haven't had the, you know, the technical nuances, all the, all the jargon, but, but I think first and foremost, you just have to think about always plan your case by what are you trying to accomplish, and put that as your framework, and then work backwards from that. Because ultimately, end of, a lot of the endovascular cases is, is not done necessarily in the procedure room itself, but it's the preoperative and the pre-procedural planning that you need to do before you go into the room, um, and thereby, that's when the case is most successful. So how I think about an endovascular case is I say, okay, today I'm going to accomplish a lower extremity angiogram with a possible you know, balloon angioplasty and stenting. It's like, okay, so that's my goal to accomplish it. Well, then you have to think about how do I build my platform in order to allow me to do that? So. First off, thinking about where are you going to get access at? Are you going to get access in your ipsilateral or contralateral groin? Then are you going to use, um, uh, what size sheath are you going to use? Do you want that sheath to be a short sheath, a long sheath? Do you want it to be hydrophobic or hydrophilic? Then once you have your sheath in place, then you can start to think about, well, how am I going to get my wire from point A, which is your access point, to point B, which is where the lesion itself is at? And what wire will best allow me to accomplish that? Do I want a glide wire that has a steerable tip? Do I want a J wire that might be less traumatic? And looking at the endovascular portions in terms of the vessel characteristics, the tortuosity, the calcification, all those things are important. Then once you have your wires selected in terms of the thing you want to do, think about your catheter and how can that catheter be helpful. Do I want a flush catheter, you know, allow me to take good pictures? Or do I want an end hole catheter that allows me to navigate those blood vessels? And then last but not least, once you do have a good angiogram picture of your blood vessels itself, then you want to think about your either balloon or stenting from that aspect. So I, when I approach an endovascular case itself, I always start by building my platform in my mind and how do I best get my wire, catheter, and sheath to the given area that I want to accomplish the case. Then once you can get that platform to that basis there, then you think about your devices, your balloons, your stents. Um, your endovascular uh, aortic aneurysm cases; those are the bigger devices. But if you if you can't get your wire catheter and sheath to your given area of location, all those devices are for naught without having your good platform built. So I think the tried and true aspect of endovascular cases is building your platform, maintain your principles of wire catheter and sheath access, and then you can advance beyond that as you progress in your endovascular training. It's
2: perfect. I, you know, I think that. Uh... The place that I got lost as a as a junior trainee was that uh, sometimes we'll build multiple platforms for a particular case because it might take one catheter and wire and sheath type to get the wire tip to the place you need to get it so that then you can swap it out for all the stuff you actually need to do your, your uh, device placement or your angiogram or whatever. And so uh, understanding that a lot of endovascular surgery is very fluid and you'll see things that if you're not paying attention, the scrub techs in in your attendings will be swapping wires and catheters and doing things that you're not even aware of with skill sets that you need to pay attention to, like being able to control the wire and how to maneuver the the tips and things like that in ways that uh, are actually uh, really hard to appreciate early on. And so it's worth, honestly, another piece of advice for this, which is uh, Frank, I think, would agree mm-hmm. is that sometimes it's it's helpful as a junior trainee to actually watch the scrub tech for a case yeah. and watch how they manage their wires, watch how they inflate, deflate balloons, the prep devices, things like that, because not understanding how to do those things is a critical component of uh, endovascular surgery. And so... Uh, I think that's pretty much all I had for today, Frank anything else to yeah add no. on at the end
1: I, I think this is overall this like we said before this is a great primer to endovascular therapy um, this this accompanies with the PowerPoint that we have online so we encourage everybody to watch that and use this as a resource to kind of start your endovascular learning knowledge basis as a jumping off point point. and hopefully this will allow you to not approach those endovascular cases you know with fear and trepidation but more kind of approach it in as a learning opportunity you'll establish your platform and you'll you know be able to take care of those cases in the best way possible so. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you guys got a good aspect out of this.
2: Dominate the day. Dominate the day, you guys.
0: Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.